You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and had grieved him to his heart. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and pray, Father, that you would be pleased, Father, to uh, meet us again uh, here in this place. Open our hearts to your word, Father, and open your wonderful word to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. There are two words that our current culture has developed a significant allergy towards, and they are the words judgment and wrath. Um, <laughs> what a wonderful way to introduce a sermon, you know. I mean, this is a real barnstormer already, isn't it? I mean, um, but um, hey, we've covered a lot of material here in Genesis, but that having been said, we're really not very far in the Genesis narrative, are we? You know, uh, we're really just getting started, nor are we very far into scriptures for that matter. And we've already encouraged, we've already um, um, encountered judgment on a couple of occasions, haven't we? So, so early in, and here we've already encountered judgment. The first utter, utterance of judgment was back in chapter 3, verse 14. You know, Adam and Eve, they fall in the garden, you know, rebelling against God and and God does something quite merciful, actually. He comes into the garden looking for Adam, and he, he questions him. And some of you have heard me talk about this before. Uh, these questions are so merciful. Uh, they, they really are so merciful. You know, Lord's questioning Adam as a, as a loving and merciful thing. Um, when the Lord calls out and says, Adam, where are you? God, you know, Adam hasn't escaped God's notice. God knows where Adam is, you know. Um, there's nowhere that we can go and be out of the Lord's sight. The Lord knew exactly where Adam was, so why the question? Why would he ask him the question? It's because there's a breach in the relationship. You know, it's, as, a parent, as parents, we do the same thing, don't we? You know, when little junior is fouled up, what do we, what do we say? When we know the answer to the question, we ask it anyway, don't we? We know the answer. Why are we asking a question when, you know, when we already know the answer? It's because we want to hear it from them. You know? And sometimes there's a particular name reserved just for these moments. <laughs> Mine was Ricky Lee. <laughs> My grandmother used to call me. When I heard her say Ricky Lee, I was in the dock. You know, and some of us could probably say, you know, we've, we've, there's been certain names that, 
that uh, we heard. And what's that mean? Well, it's one of these moments. Um, what's going on? Uh, well, when we foul up, we've breached the relationship. And the, and the question is designed to give the guilty party the opportunity to repent so that the relationship could be restored. And there is no restoration without repentance. I mean, this really needs to be hollered from the housetops because we live in a day where uh, we have faith all over the place without repentance. Um, it, it's, a, it's a counterfeit faith. It's not true saving faith. We cannot, if, if you're in possession of saving faith, then there's a, there's a repentant principle that's in your heart. Uh, you're, you're repenting often. Uh, you're, you're repenting of your sins often. Um, uh, it, saving faith is going to bring repentance. They're different things, but they can't be separated. Now, they're not one and the same thing. Faith and repentance are different things. Faith is the hand that takes hold of the Lord. Uh, repentance is the ownership of what we've done wrong and a change of heart and a change of mind. Now, we, we can't have saving faith if we haven't had this change of mind. Uh, if it's still business as usual, well, then our faith is counterfeit. Um, it's counterfeit. Now, that's what's going on here when the Lord questions Adam and Eve. He's displaying incredible mercy, love, and grace. But you'll notice in verse 14 of Genesis 3, if you look there, uh, what question does God ask of the serpent? He, he, he doesn't ask a question at all, does he? There's no question. Um, no, the serpent receives judgment. Adam and Eve didn't receive judgment. They received a question. They received mercy. Uh, the serpent received judgment. Now, of course, in the fourth chapter, we saw the judgment of Cain. And, and you know, it doesn't come until many pleas uh, for repentance. I mean, it doesn't come until... Uh, you recall when we were studying that chapter, we saw many times the Lord's reaching out to Cain. You know, he's reaching out to Cain. He's reaching out to Cain. But Cain refused every offer of grace that was granted to him. He showed no remorse for his idolatry. There's faith without repentance. I mean, what's Cain doing in the beginning of chapter 4? He's offering, he's offering uh, worship to the Lord. He's offering his sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, he's just going through the motions is what he's doing. Faith without repentance. It's counterfeit. It's counterfeit. You can take that to the bank. It's counterfeit. Cain refused. He showed no remorse for his idolatry or for the murder of his brother. So in short, there's no repentance. And if you look at chapter 4 and verse 10, the Lord has a question for Cain. It's, what have you done? But this is a different, it's, it's a different context. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, I suppose if Cain at that point right then would have repented. Uh, perhaps things would have went differently for him. But we see that it was too late. Verse 11 is a verse of judgment. The Lord says to Cain, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say that God's mercy is infinite. How many have heard that before? That's not true. I'm watching for facial expressions. God's mercy is not infinite. 
It's limited. It's limited. And, and we must never say that God's mercy is infinite because we're, we're going to see in our text here, and we've already seen it in terms of, of Satan in Genesis 3 and in terms of Cain in Genesis 4, and we're going to see in terms of the rest of humanity in Genesis 6, that there's limits to God's mercy. There's limits to His mercy. If we think that God's mercy is unlimited, then we're going to have a tendency to presume upon it even more than we already are. That's going to be the outcome. Um, God's mercy is abundant. It's abundant. But it's not unlimited. In fact, that's the title of the message. Mercy abundant, not unlimited. Abundant is a good word to describe God's mercy because we see it is so very abundant. But there's a line in the sand. It's a line that's known only to God. God is the only one. It's His prerogative where that line is. It's known only to Him. But it's nevertheless a line in the sand. And once we cross it by refusing the gospel, there's no point of return. There's no point of return. And this brings us to our text. Look, look to Genesis 6 and verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, last time we spent most of our time discerning the meaning of verse 2, didn't we? That's a handful. Well, that really is a handful. It's mysterious, but I think the most natural interpretation of it is the one that, that I, I, I take, which is uh, intermarriage of uh, believers with unbelievers. I think... Uh, I, I, some of you will recall if you heard the message that there's a view out there that the sons of God are fallen angels and these angels are intermarrying with uh, uh, these, these daughters, these women, and they're having these Nephilim, serving these Nephilim. Uh, I take the position that the meaning of the sons of God are professing believers from the line of Seth. Um, that, that's the position I take on it. But I want you to know that there are some really great Bible interpreters that take the other position. So I want you to be aware of that. So if you encounter that, you won't find it, it won't hit you as something really, really strange. And in fact, I can't remember what translation it is, but there's a translation, it's a paraphrase of the scriptures, that go ahead and, it goes ahead in these verses and takes the interpretive liberties to really insert angels in verse two. And I can't remember, I won't say what, what, what copy it is, um, so I won't say, but, uh, but there is a paraphrase out there. It's escaping me, the name of it. But I think this does most justice to Genesis, to Genesis verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. He, obviously, we have judgment here, don't we? And man is being judged, and that is both men and women, all humanity. And I think intermarriage between believers and unbelievers better fits this judgment. I think it, I think it better fits the, the whole course of things uh, as, uh, as we move on. But here's my point. My point is God's mercy is abundant, but it's not unlimited. It's not unlimited. There's limits to God's patience. We dare not presume upon His, His mercy or His patience. There's a line in the sand known only to God, and we dare not cross it with stubborn rejection of the gospel. For once it's crossed, there's no point 
of return. The old preachers used to put it like this. You cannot repent any time you choose. I think we really need to start preaching that. Because we think we're in charge. We are not in charge. And you cannot repent any time you want. You can't. We think to ourselves, I'll repent later. Well, really? Are you going to get that opportunity to do that? When the author to the letter of Hebrews is saying today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. It's a blessing to hear God's voice. And then to refuse that voice. To smack his hand, if you will. Which is what we're doing. Um, that's what Cain does. And unfortunately, that's what these people of old are doing as well. Notice the second half of verse 3. The Lord says in the second half of verse 3 that his days shall be 120 years. Well, what's that all about? That can be taken a couple of different ways. I mean, we could say the judgment comes 120 years from now. Or uh, some would say the lifespan of mankind will now be no more than 120 years. Now, of course, weighing against the lifespan interpretation is the fact that many, many of the, the biblical characters, do uh, their lifespans do exceed 120 years after the fall. Abraham would be an example of that. And, of course, a response from... Uh, from those who take that position would say, well, it's, it's, you know, it's just a general rule. Folks don't live to be more than 120 years from this point on. I heard on the radio uh, this, this week, I think it was this week, that on Wednesday, the oldest uh, U.S. citizen passed away. I think it was on Wednesday at 115. And I thought to myself, wow, I did the math. I'm like, she was, she was born in 1903. You talk about a lifespan, you know. 1903. I had a great-grandmother that was born in 1899. So my great-grandma was four years old when, when she was born. Um, but still, it's less than 120 years. But I don't take the position, the lifespan position. I think it's more probable that the Lord has given mankind in another 120 years to repent. I, I think that's more probable. Um, because people live beyond 120 years um, after the fall, we still see, I think Abraham, what he lived to be, 147, I think. Um, Moses lived to be 120 years. You know. Um, now, again, let's keep the plain things the main thing. The plain thing is that God's mercy is not unlimited. I mean, that's what we see. 120 years. Um, it's, it's got a limit. It's got a, it's got a, it's got a line. There's a line uh, in the sand and we see there's another verse that's showing this. God is very, very, very merciful. Uh, very, very, very patient, but His mercy has limits. Now, what happens when folks repeatedly reject the gospel? What happens when folks over and over again refuse to repent and come to Christ? Look at verse 3. God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. I think the margin's a better interpret, a better, um, um, it's a better translation. Personally, the King James translation renders the passage, my spirit shall not always strive with man. I think if you, if you have an ESV and you look at the margin, uh, uh, the margin should say something like, my spirit shall not always contend, uh, contend with man. I think that helps us understand that verse. And the, the scriptures teach us that we're totally depraved. I mean, that is we're depraved in every faculty of our being. Yesterday we were talking about a faculty of that depravity, the faculty of communication. You know, in terms of communication, I mean, 
um, we know, you know, communication's not perfect in this life, is it? Um, we don't always say things the way we mean to say things, and we don't always understand each other, do we? Sometimes we misunderstand each other, but our thinking has been affected, our speaking has been affected, our reasoning, emotionally we've been affected, mentally we've been affected, physically, and so on and on and on. That's the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, it, it means that every, every attribute of our entire being has been affected by the fall. This must not be confused with being utterly depraved. If we were utterly depraved, then we would be as bad as we could possibly be. Now, uh, we're not as bad as we can possibly be. Uh, but um, the reason, and we could ask ourselves, why are we not as bad as we can possibly be? It's because of God's restraining grace. It's because of God's, God's what we call God's common grace. Um, and He works this restraining grace by way of His Holy Spirit. But what happens when we cross the line? When we cross the line, when we've pushed just a little too far, our text teaches us that God may, in, it may be uh, His will to withdraw that restraining grace. And that's scary. To withdraw that, that restraining grace. And what this essentially does is leaves us to ourselves. You know, when you get a second, read Exodus chapters, I think beginning with chapter 6 through 14, and you'll see God's, God's contest with Pharaoh. And as you read that narrative of God's contest with Pharaoh, you'll see that um, over and over again it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then at one point in the narrative, it switches gears. And it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. How's the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? He just withdraws from him with his restraining grace. Just leaves him to himself. You see, Pharaoh crosses that line and there's no point of return for Pharaoh, is there? He ends up destroyed in the Red Sea. Um, if you look down to verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, here's a strong indictment against the depravity of man. And it's the exact opposite of what we hear all the time, isn't it? All the time we're hearing that we're good, that we're... We're good. All we need is a little bit of education. Or all we need is just a little bit of help just to, just, just to get a little bit better. I mean, that, that campaign has been going on so strong for so long that it should be no mystery that really the prevailing attitude today towards the next life is one of universalism. You know what I mean by universalism? Universalism teaches that everybody's going to heaven. Listen, I wish that was true. I would really love to preach that. I'd like it a lot better than what I'm preaching right now. I, I'd like to be able to stand here and say, thus saith the Lord, we're all headed to heaven. But that isn't, that isn't the teaching of Scripture, is it? It's not. Um, it should be no mystery as to why the average person doesn't feel a need for salvation from their sins. And add to the fact that the church has the same allergy as the culture in this regard. Uh, against the words judgment and wrath and sin. I mean, what in the world do we need saved from? You know, what, what's Jesus doing on the... If there's no judgment, what is Jesus doing on the cross? If we just need educated, why didn't He just come and teach us? Why did He go through the passion? 
Why did he go through this suffering? Why did he go through all of that? Well, it's ridiculous. We, we need saved from what you, when you look to the cross and you see what Jesus is enduring on the cross, that is what we deserve and that is what we need saved from. He steps in our place and takes what is due to us. Now the Bible says something radically different. I mean, look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And, and we can remember our study in Romans. What's Paul say? I mean, quoting from various Old Testament passages in Romans 3, 11 to 18. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow! Say, that sounds like a description of the worst of us. But chapters 1 and 2 of Romans make it clear that that's a description of all of us. All of us. And John tells us the same thing when he says in John 3.19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But back to Genesis 6. Verse 5 is a tough verse and Verse 2 is a tough verse, but boy, look at verse 6. <laughs> Have you thought about verse 6? And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. What do we do with that? I mean, I can remember years ago studying this passage, and there's other passages in the Bible that are like this. And I've been thinking, okay, okay, we see two things here. We see that the Lord is sorry we see that he is grieved. And I can remember asking a lot of questions about this verse. I mean, has God made a mistake? I've never in my lifetime thought that once in my lifetime have I ever thought that God makes mistakes. I've never thought that. Never, I've never believed that. I've never wrestled with that. I've never thought that. Um, but does he have regrets? Because it sounds like he does in that verse, doesn't it? And does he change his mind? Um, there's other passages like this. Let me read one of them for you. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 11. There the Lord says, quote, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Paul says, I regret that I have made Saul. Does God have regrets? I mean, how do we, under, how do we understand this? Now, we need to remember the principle. One of the principles that I've been, that I've been sharing and that principle is this, that any interpretation that we have of one particular passage of Scripture needs to be able to withstand the scrutiny of the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. In other words, one passage is not going to contradict another passage because ultimately we have one author of the whole Bible and that author never contradicts himself, right? Okay, um, so if we, have, if we come to two verses that seem to contradict each other, then we need to take a look at our interpretation of either either of the verses or both of them, right? Okay, well, we're told, here we're told in Genesis 6, 6 and verses like it, I mean, has God made a mistake? Does God have regrets? I mean, it seems that verse 
First Samuel 15, 11 seems to teach that God has regrets. Does God change his mind? Uh, I'm going to answer all three of those questions with a no. No, no, no. Does God make mistakes? No. No. Does God have regrets? No. Well, so wait a second. It says that he regrets. We'll get to that in just a second. Does God change his mind? No. He doesn't change his mind. Um, listen to Numbers 23 and verse 19. It reads this way. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. We change our minds, don't we? When new information comes to light and we see a better course or we think we've seen a better course. Is that a possibility with God? Who sees all things at once? That things in the future are before Him just like things in the past are before Him. Just like things in the present are before Him. He's not locked into time like we are. Uh, he sees all things. He sees the things that we haven't done yet. He sees the things that we've done. He remembers them perfectly. We don't. Does God change His mind? No, He doesn't change His mind. Uh, th therefore, the, the possibility of God... God doesn't change His mind. The possibility of regrets. No, He doesn't. He doesn't regret. It's not like he fouled up and wished he wouldn't have done something that he did. Uh, no, I think that if we take that position, uh, then we're doing an injustice to God's character. So what do we do with Genesis 6.6? 6? What do we do with 1 Samuel 15.11? When we read the, Lord, the words that the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart, it sounds like he's regretting it, doesn't it? Well, here's what we do with it. What we have here is what we call an anthropomorphism. Has anyone heard that term before? Anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism, yeah, it's a big long word, you know. Um, it's not that bad. It's, um, anthropos is the Greek word for man. So you can hear anthropomorphism, anthropos, morphism. It's when God takes on human attributes in order to communicate something to us. Let me give you an example. In Isaiah 41 and verse 10, we read the words, uh, and God is speaking here, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay. Does God have a hand? Now, when we read that, I don't think any of us think, well, God's got a hand. I don't think we think that. We realize that the language is figurative, don't we? God is a spirit. But the verse says he has a hand. Well, how are we to interpret it? We have to interpret it according to its genre. You know, it, it's, it's, it's poetic. It's figurative language very clearly. What is the Lord doing? He's communicating strength and ability. For those who are right-handed, I mean, when we're doing something intricate, which hand do we use? When you want to write something, if you're right-handed, wh which hand picks up the pencil? I mean, have you ever tried to do it with the other hand? You're not so good at it, are you? So it's an idea of ability. It's an idea of strength. It's, 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 a, it's a metaphor of strength and a metaphor of ability. And the same thing is going on in Genesis 6.6. 6. When we read, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. We're not reading about God making mistakes. We're not reading about God changing his mind. What's being communicated here is disgust. God is disgusted. 
And it's a passage. What, why, why use this language? Actually, more, more technically, this isn't an anthropomorphism. It's what we call an anthropopathism. An anthropopathism is when human emotion is taken on. It's a human emotion that God is he's using a human emotion to hit us with something. We're, we're meant to feel this. We can relate with this. Because when we have had, when we're fed up, we talk like this, don't we? But we don't want to go uh, attributing all of our stuff to Almighty God. He, he, can, he can speak this way to us in this particular passage, but let's not attribute all of the sinful stuff that we do when we're disgusted to Almighty God. What this passage is teaching us is that God is completely disgusted with how things are going. That's what's being taught in this passage. And we hardly ever hear about this, don't we? I mean, is it even conceivable that God could be disgusted with humanity? Is that even conceivable? I would say, yes, it is conceivable. And I say that God is talking to us away in a way right now that we can feel. And what is He saying? He is saying He is fed up and disgusted. That's the meaning of this passage. His mercy is abundant, but it's not unlimited. It's abundant, but it's not. It, there's a line in the sand that's known only to God, and once it's crossed, there's no turning back. It's a dangerous thing to sit on the fence. It's a dangerous thing to sit on the fence. There is no fence. It's an illusion. The time to repent is now. Uh, wait till later? What? Why live in your sin longer and wait until later? The time to repent is now. Why heap up more judgment? The time to repent is now. Let me conclude on a gracious note, please. You know, I, most of you know me well enough to know that I don't like preaching these kind of messages. I really don't. Um, but this is why I preach through the books. I didn't choose this passage. It's the next one. I, I didn't choose the subject of this passage. God did. I think it's the best way to go because I do not have the wisdom to choose what we're going to look at next. I think it would be really arrogant on me to think that I have, enough, that I have so much wisdom that I, I could look at a group of people and say, oh, I know where we need to go next. Really? Because I don't know where we need to go next. And I'm comforted as we preach through the, through the books that, you know what? God knows what we need next. There's a divine order in this that I want to follow. You know, it's divine instruction. You know, sometimes you'll hear it called basic instruction before we leave earth. You've heard that, uh, that before, right? I think Burlap the Kashmir has a song called that. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Uh, I don't like preaching about our depravity. Um, but we're not going to grow unless we touch on all of these things. Um, if I, listen, if I chose the subjects, I would choose subjects I'm familiar with, especially on weeks when I'm busy. I wouldn't do the hard work of learning something new. I would do something I already knew because I'm busy. Uh, we wouldn't be growing the way we are. We wouldn't be growing like that. Um, but we take these things as they come to us and, and we grow. I don't like preaching about depravity, but that's what we come face to face with in this passage. But here comes my favorite part. It's not hard to get to the cross and the resurrection from here, is it? I mean, look at this depravity. I mean, look at this depravity. I mean, we're to own this. 
You see, repentance. Repentance says, you know what? This is, a, this is an accurate description of me. And repentance says, you know what? I own this. All right, this, this is me. And repentance takes this up and, and falls down at the foot of the cross and cries out, mercy. Lord, I, I want your mercy. And that's what saving faith looks like. That's what it looks like. You know, Jesus doesn't come just to help us a little bit, get up over the top. He comes to helpless, evil souls. That's what we are. Helpless, evil souls. And this is, this is what Jesus comes to save us from. Our very own helpless and our very own evil soul. Every evil inclination of our heart was placed on Christ when He hung on that cross. And He died for every single one. The inclinations we've had in the past, the inclinations that we'll have today, the inclinations that we'll have tomorrow. If you're in Christ Jesus, He died for every single one of those. If you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, i got a question for you. Why not? What are we waiting for? A better sermon? I don't have one. I, I don't have one. The agony and the penalty that we see Jesus taking. Listen, if you're in Christ Jesus, you know the good news is this. We will never experience that agony. If we're apart from Christ and we die apart from Christ, that is the agony we will experience and there will never be an end to it. But if we're in Christ Jesus, we'll go through tough, we're going to go through hard times for sure, but we're never going to experience that. Not once. Not for a moment. Not what Jesus endured. And that's good news, isn't it? Let me end with just one more thing. This is available to everyone who chooses to believe it. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your goodness and Your grace, Your mercy, which is abundant, but we see here, Father, in many places, it's not unlimited. And Father, we thank You that today is the day if we hear Your voice, may we not harden our hearts, but may we fall at the foot of the cross and cry out for mercy. And may we... May we look to You for that offer of grace that You're bidding everyone who comes to You uh, will have life. For all call upon the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. And, O oh, Father, we thank You and we rejoice for that, that salvation that is ours through faith. And, Father, we thank You for the repentance that, that You freely give to us, O oh, Father. And we pray, Father, that You would advance that repentance and advance that faith uh, to our, our loved ones, our relatives, our members of the community, Father. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to, to cause the, the message of the gospel to go forth with, with the, the, uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that, Father, we would see men, women, and children uh, falling down before the cross and crying out, uh, save me, O Lord, and save me. Uh, so, O Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.